Reading from Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast upon all peoples, the vow that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Reading from Matthew 14, verses 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You feed them. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve basketfuls of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is your command, if, if, you command, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand to hold of him, saying to him, Are you of little faith? Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, You are the Son of God. Well, please keep your Bibles open at that passage. Um, We're going to look at it just now. What do you fear most? What have you feared this week, perhaps? Has it been catching a a deadly pandemic? Coronavirus? Has that been a sort of bubbling away fear? Has it been fear of what the future might hold? A bit of anxiety in our household. We've got... You know, not just one baby to look after, but two babies come January. You know, how are we going to afford this? That kind of thing. 
Well, it's a question for Christians as well as non-Christians. And I guess for most, it was the first thing I talked about, catching the coronavirus, catching it and dying from it. And actually, the reason, because we have fears, why don't, why don't we look at what the Bible speaks about those fears, what, what the Bible has to say about those fears? Or why do Christians put so much emphasis on this man, Jesus, and he seems to give them courage in the face of death? Why? Have you ever wondered that? Uh, well, on your um, sheets in front of you, we've got, two main, we've got one main point, really, which is Jesus is the Son of God who saves. And that's what we're going to be looking at from our passage. Jesus is the Son of God who saves. We've just heard those words on the lips of the disciples in the boat. That was the very last thing we read. As Peter is crying out, he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus does exactly that. He saves Peter. But he doesn't just save Peter. He saves all the disciples, in fact. As he steps into the boat, the storm completely subsides. And the whole boat is safe. Saved. If we've been reading Matthew's Gospel, which we have as a church, we shouldn't find that surprising. Jesus saves. From as early as chapter 1, we're told that Jesus will save. don't know if you remember that. Well, Hannah and I have been obviously discussing baby names because we're going to need a few, aren't we? Um, We'll have to do some careful planning with Sam and Bethan as well, or else we'll end up with two or three of the same names in church, and that would be a nightmare. Names have significance, and Jesus' name means God saves. Joseph was told that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the God who saves. Uh, and in 2 Kings 4, don't look at it now, uh, but there's a story of Elisha, whose name also means God saves, which is just like this one. And you can read it in chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. Um, but it's on a much smaller scale. He, 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 people bring some food to him, it gets multiplied. And there's even leftovers. So all the details are like, like the story we just read. So Elijah, Jesus, God saves. We're meant to see the similarity. Jesus is the son of God. And actually, that's what Peter says, isn't it, at the end. He says, or the disciples say, truly you are the son of God. They recognise that he is from the father, that he is, God, he is the son of God. And that's a statement which runs throughout Matthew. So does anyone remember where we've heard that before? In Matthew's Gospel, Son of God? Come on, let's, let's do this, come on. Where have we heard the Son of God before? No, don't look at it. <laughs> Cheats, cheating. You didn't say I can look at it. <laughs> okay, you can look at it, you can look at it, fine. Where have we heard Son of God before? I'm thinking of three, maybe three or four examples. Okay, I'll give you an example, I'll give you two clues. First one is uh, that it's not from this world or you know kind of another voice the other one is that there's people who are quite dubious characters saying this okay so that's your two clues okay so who can tell me one of those two okay chapter eight the demons say what have you come to torment us jesus the son of god 
Have you come to commend us before the time? So, so that's a dubious character. There's another one in Matthew's Gospel so far. Who else? Baptism. Baptism. Yeah, this is my son. The voice from heaven. Chapter 4, isn't it? Uh, chapter 3, end of chapter 3. This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Uh, what, who else? Who else says this? When else does it say this is my son? Or son of God. Okay, it's in chapter 4, uh, with the temptation. Uh, so it's, it's, the devil says... <laughs> If you are the son of God, okay, it's a question, but he uses that term. And actually, we're going to see it again in chapter 17 at the transfiguration where the voice from heaven again says, this is my son. So Jesus is the son of God and he saves. And we saw that in the boat, didn't we? He saves. He saves not just Peter, he saves the disciples. Uh, And actually, this profession, this Faith is going to be shown by the Roman centurion, the soldier who stood at the foot of the cross, who watches Jesus die. He put him there. He was involved in the execution, and yet he says, truly, this was the Son of God. Um, So there's lots of people, and increasingly, people from other nations or different beliefs and different backgrounds who are coming to see that Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God saves by laying down his life for sinners. But our reading, okay, our reading today, it starts with the feeding of the 5,000. And if we're honest, it reads far less about salvation and more about sandwiches. The whole conversation and concern seems to be about feeding the crowds. Hope you've had your lunch or you'll start to feel hungry as we talk about this, yeah? It doesn't seem to say anything about salvation and yet this meal has significance, and we're going to see that from the details, and then we're going to look at one Old Testament reference, which is that Isaiah one we read. So in verse 19 of chapter 14, Jesus tells the crowds to sit. He ordered the grounds to sit down on the grass. That word for sit is actually recline. It's a bit more like what Faramaz is doing in the back there. Um, but, you know, reclining, because when they ate around the table, they didn't have chairs. So they reclined on like a cushion or something. So the picture is actually more of like a dinner party. Something a bit more formal, where you actually invite people rather than them just turning up. Um, So the picture is of a banquet. A meal. It's it's the word we'd use for like dine. Instead of just grab a sandwich in the park or a picnic. Um, We've heard Jesus use that word and it's in chapter 8. Um, so if you want to just quick look, quickly look at chapter 8 uh, and verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's clearly future looking and he uses the word recline, doesn't it? So recline at table with Abraham, Jacob and Isaac. So um, there'll be people coming from east and west. There'll be a gathering of people from all over not just within Israel, um, unlikely characters, and there will be a banquet. And actually, that picture of a banquet is actually one of the prophets also spoke about. This simple meal here on the hillside has massive significance. It's actually a foretaste of the universal banquet. Those that Jesus has started to gather, people Jesus gathers to himself, he will save. 
So this is about salvation. Did you notice that in Isaiah? Did you notice what the people will be saying? They will be saying, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. Doesn't that sound a little bit like what Peter and the disciples were saying? Keep those words in mind. We're going to look at the disciples' response in a bit. Jesus is the son of God. He saves. Jesus can save because all things are subject to him. And that's where we go to our second half of the reading today. Jesus can save because all things are subject to him. Jesus demonstrates his supreme power over all creation. The whole storm is going. I mean, we only saw a little whirlwind today and we were mesmerised, weren't we? The wind. This is on the lake. This is no, a lake that they call the sea. It's terrifying. And yet Jesus is there and he ha- his word has power over all creation. And it responds to his powerful word. We see Jesus actually here going into battle for his people. Because there's something spiritual going on here. And he's going to protect them by disarming the spiritual forces of evil. And making them his footstool. Jesus is literally treading on the sea. Treading on, on, on the waves. The thing that the disciples are most scared of. And poses most of a threat and evil towards the disciples. Is under Jesus' feet. So he... Everything is subject to him. And that's why Jesus can save. Because all things are subject to him. You notice three things about Jesus' position. Uh, So look at verse 23. We're actually told that Jesus has prayed three times in this passage. Once at the very start, when he hears the news about John. Once when he broke the bread, he looked up to heaven and gave thanks. In verse 19. And here, he goes up the mountainside to pray. Three things about Jesus' position in this, in this short story. Jesus is on the mountainside. And what's he doing? He's praying. Not only does he have that relationship with the Father, but he is praying for his people. Before he goes into battle on the lake to, 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 for his people to protect them, he is praying. So there's a picture here of Jesus actually interceding for his people. So that's the first thing, he's on the mountain. Secondly, verse 25, he's treading on the sea. He's walking towards them with the sea under his feet. The third position is he's in the boat. And we see that in verse 32. He promises never to leave or forsake them, that he will always be with them. He's on the mountain praying for them. He's treading on the sea. All things are subject to him. And he's in the boat. He's with his people. If that wasn't comfort enough... Look at what Jesus says. Look at his words in verse 27. I'm told that in the original language, this short sentence of Jesus comes smack bang in the middle. So there's the same number of words before it and the same number of words after it. So this is dead centre. And he says this, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Two things saying pretty much the same thing. Have courage, do not be afraid. And smack bang in the middle of those two is... What? It is I. So the basis for our courage, our comfort, is him. It is I. And those words are pretty bold, actually, because their I am he is kind of Yahweh. (laughs) I am. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus can save, and he can keep his people safe. Because all things are subject to him. 
And the question we had uh, from hanging over from last week, so we're uh, on the third point on our handout, is this question, hanging over from last week, are we blind to who Jesus is, or are we beginning to see? Because you remember last week we looked at the unbelief of Herod and that of Jesus' hometown. They, sure, they saw plenty of what Jesus did. They, t- they said, this man has mighty works. They, they, they attested to it. They'd seen it. And yet their unbelief was shown or evidenced in the fact that they didn't want to give up their sin. Or they weren't willing to admit that they had more that they, they didn't understand. They just thought, I've, I've heard this all before. So unbelief. But this is two accounts of people who are beginning to see who Jesus is and who are learning to trust him. And actually, Jesus' conversation with them is throughout, isn't it? So we can actually see that Jesus here is taking their little faith and he's nurturing it and he's growing it. And he's teaching them, training them to depend on him through the situations that he takes them through. So that leaves us to ask, which one are we? Are we the people who are blind to Jesus? We can see, we hear all of these things and yet we just don't do anything about it. Or are we those like the disciples who are beginning to see Jesus and we see that their faith is growing. Their trust in him is growing. Well, how do we see that? Well, if you think about it, Peter, one of the disciples at the start, he, what do the disciples do when they hear about the problem of the, the crowds? They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we've got an idea. This is what you should do and this is what you must do. So they're calling the shots. And yet right at the very end there, Peter is the one who will say, all you have to do, Jesus, is command me to get out of the boat and I'll do it. They're beginning to see who Jesus is and they're willing to submit to him. So there should be a change. In the last chapter, chapter 13, you might remember us talking about this. We heard that Jesus say that the one who has, to the one who has more will be given. Uh, So let's have a look at that in verse chapter 13. Uh, verse 12 let's look at verse 11 chapter 13 verse 11 and 12 Jesus says this to his disciples to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been given for to the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. So who are the disciples in this? Are they the ones who have or, or don't have? Not a rhetorical question. Which ones are they? The ones who have. Okay. And what does it say will happen? They will have even more. And they will even have an, abund- an abundance, yeah? So, so, and even in that chapter, chapter 13, remember, Jesus gave them a bit, a parable. And they came back to him and they said, Jesus, we want to know more. Faith was shown in the fact that they were growing in their understanding. And Jesus was, that more was being given to them, yeah? And the same thing here with the disciples. The disciples to whom faith had been, already been given, remember it's a gift... At return to him, they're given more as they return to him for understanding. And throughout this section, let's have a look. We see Jesus nurture and strengthen their faith. So let's have a look. 
Um, Presumably, Jesus could have done it all without them. The feeding, everything. Bish, bosh, there's your lunch. Yeah? He could have done it all without them, but he doesn't, does he? Did you notice how he involves them in every step of the way? In the inclusion of his conversation with them, we see that, don't we? We see him training them to trust and depend on him for everything. So in verse 18, they are to come to him. Verse 18, uh, verse 17, he says, uh, they say we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Training them. Trust, trust him. Depend on him. Come to him. Don't send the people away. Get rid of the problem. Come to Jesus. Trust him. Depend on him. And when, notice in uh, verse uh, 19. Verse 19 is all one sentence. Okay, So when it breaks it up, don't believe it. It's all one sentence. And at the end of that sentence it says, He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. So they are the ones distributing the food. In verse 22, uh, if you look at that, it says he made, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him. Have you ever wondered why? He's there, he's just finished up. He might have been doing the party thing. You know when you have a party and someone says, don't worry you guys, I'll do the cleaning up, you go on ahead. Uh, it could be that. Catherine's obviously the, the prime example of that. She stays to the bitter end. No, he's not doing that. He's compelling them to go because he's training them. And he's training them, getting them ready for a time when he's no longer going to be there in the flesh. So he sends them out on the, on the boat, on the river, on, on the lake on their own. Uh, Jesus deliberately sends them out alone while he remains on the shore. There will come a time when he will no longer be there in the flesh and so they must entrust themselves to him so as I said what starts off as them coming to tell Jesus what he must do we worked out what the problem is Jesus you send them away actually by the end of it it results in Peter asking Jesus Jesus you just tell me to come and I'll come even if he, he's entrusting his welfare his whole life to Jesus by stepping out of the boat So, are we blind, like Herod, like the hometown? Seeing something of who Jesus is, that's about enough. Or are we beginning to see who Jesus is, and therefore true faith, saving faith, which is depending on him, trusting him for our salvation? And it makes all the difference. Peter entrusts his life completely to Jesus' powerful word, doesn't he? I mean, gosh, it's, it's, it's a boat for crying out loud. I, I don't like boats at the best of times, but, you know, then saying to Jesus, yeah, you know, I'll come, call me and I'll come. Gosh, you know. He entrusts his life completely to Jesus' powerful word. He started to see that Jesus is the son of God. All authority is his and everything is subject to him. And so it's not just a kind of, yes, I know that. It's Sunday school. I've been taught that. It's... There's a difference it makes. I trust you, Jesus. I'll come. And actually, the disciples, let's have a look at this last verse. 
And those in the boat worshipped him. They worshipped him. They didn't just turn the page. They worshipped him. Because he's the son of God. And there'll be loads of other religions that say, Jesus is a prophet, he's just a man, he's just a good teacher. But they won't worship him. Because worship is for God alone. And so Jesus being the son of God means they worship him. So this is, these are guys who probably have very Jewish background, okay? And they're worshipping Jesus. He is their God. What does it say in Isaiah? Um, surely, wait, let me get that back. Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. Jesus is the son of God. He saves. He can save because all things are subject to him. Are you beginning to see that? Will you cry out to him to save you? What does this mean if you're not a Christian? Well, we, we use that word faith, don't we? But it's quite general. And we use it to mean just put your trust in something, anything. You've got to have faith. Faith is sort of like, faith is just a trust. It doesn't matter what it's in. So people say you've got to have some kind of faith. Or all faiths. Faith isn't vague here like that. It's very specific. Because faith is that Jesus is the Son of God. And if he's not, then he's nobody. Jesus is the Son of God. And if we start to see that, it will show in us wanting to come to him. It might even be the weakest cry. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. I love that prayer. God loves that prayer. It's, not that, it's such a short, simple prayer, isn't it? Lord, acknowledging who he is, save me. It's like the, the tax collector, isn't it? Um, have mercy on me, a sinner. You're the one I come to. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, save me. It's that kind of prayer. It doesn't have to be complicated. You might have only started to see a little bit of who Jesus is. Why not pray that prayer? Lord, save me. And Jesus is the one who subjects evil ultimately through his death on the cross. So he takes the, the, the biggest enemy we face, which is uh, sin and death. And he takes it upon himself and he dies. And that's why the Roman centurion said, surely this is the son of God. That's ultimately where we see God's salvation. He saves us from sin. Lord, save me. What does it mean for those in church? Well, it's worth seeing, isn't it, that saving faith, seen in Peter and the disciples, is more than just the right words. We've already said, haven't we? Jesus is the Son of God. Well, Satan says that. The demons say that. And at least they shudder. At least they're scared. So saving faith is more than just words. That truth, what it looks like in, in terms of us not just thinking that, knowing that in our heads, but, but believing that in our hearts, is something that will change us.
Um, saving faith, faith that saves, is all of those things we see in Peter, isn't it? Trust, obedience, love for him, worship for him. Surely this is our God. It's more than just words. Anyone can say Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. What does it mean for those with little faith then? If you, if you're in, if you are a believer, but you're someone who perhaps looks a lot like Peter, and we do, don't we? I think this is where the application comes in for us, actually. That we tend to picture that storm as uh, any hardship we go through in life, individually. So the hard things we face in life. And I think, in terms of this, it is a bit too general to do that. And we miss the application. Because for the disciples aren't doing it individually. They're collective. They're there together. And as I've said before, there's kind of a spiritual thing. Uh, it's spiritual opposition facing them. And I think Matthew, the, people, the church that Matthew is writing to are facing that kind of hostile spiritual opposition. And so the comfort for them is, is that Jesus is with them. Have, com- have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. That he is interceding for them. Yes, he's in heaven. But he is interceding for them with his prayers. And um, yes, he is, he, all things are subject to him. The things that they fear most are actually under his feet. So he's just treading water. Um, and also, the, he is in the boat with them. By his spirit, he is with them. He doesn't leave them. So I think when we generalise that sort of storms of life type thing, it's not so helpful for this passage because it's the church. And the collective people of God will face spiritual opposition. And there'll be points where the people... And there has been points, hasn't there? I mean, let's be honest. Church in Iran, church in Syria, church around the world strong physical spiritual opposition that the church faces and they'll be scared (laughs) there'll be times when they think the wind, the waves are just going to flatten us and they need to know that Jesus is the God who saves He, he won't abandon them um, a little bit earlier on in this, in Matthew's Gospel, we heard about the gatherings. When Jesus went and did, like you said, the demon exorcism, and they, all those pigs rush off into the lake, the people loved their material comfort, their life, here and now. So they told Jesus to get lost. That must be discouraging. And yet here, let's have a look at um, verses 34 to 36. We get that same word... In verse 36, implored. In your, what's, it, what's it in your version? Implored? What's it say? Implored. Begged. Begged him. That's the same word you get in chapter uh, 8. For them begging him to leave their region. And let's read what it says. It says, And when they had crossed over, they came to, the la- to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word around to all that region and brought him all who were sick and begged him that they might only touch the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. So you've got this new place, Gennesaret, in verse, chapter, verse 14, and you've got the place of the gatherings. 
And there will be loads of dis- uh, discouragement when our message, which is the message of Jesus, is about um, safety, not just for this life, but for eternal life. When people sort of yawn, shrug their shoulders and say, it's just about this life. We don't need that stuff. We'll be discouraged. But actually, in here, there's a whole group of people who are saying, Jesus, we just want to touch your garment. We want to be near you. And so there's what, you know, this is fulfillment. This is people responding to the gospel. And so we should see that as well. Every people, every tribe, every tongue has been gathered to Jesus. So what will give this fearful church, going back to our initial question, what, what's your fear? What will give us courage? And not just amidst the coronavirus, but amidst spiritual forces, the opposition to the gospel today. It's huge. <laughs> and we're, we're weak, aren't we? Let's be honest. We're weak. What will give us courage? The basis for the courage Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. The basis for our courage is Jesus, the Son of God. He will not abandon his people. He is near even when we can't see him. All things are subject to him. The evil that we face is firmly under his feet. The things that we fear will be above our heads are under Jesus' feet. Because of his rebuke. And what we know of Peter's denial, later on in Matthew and the Gospels, we're often harsh on his actions, aren't we? Um, we sort of say, oh, Peter, you sort of uh, got ahead of yourself there, mate, and Jesus had to sort of bring you down to size a bit. But actually, in just a few chapters' time, Peter is going to be the one on whose lips are the words, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, in chapter 16. That's what, Jesus, well, that's what Peter's going to say. And let's just have a look at that, because it says this. This is what I'm going to end with. Um, in verse 15, Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Eternal Son of the Father, we worship you, for you have entered into battle on behalf of your people. All things were and are subject to you and your powerful word. And yet you willingly allowed yourself to be crushed for our sin. And yet you emerged victorious. We entrust ourselves to you. Save us. Thank you that in all circumstances you are with your church and building your church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. And maybe just take a, a, a minute now just to think through some of the, those applications.
um, and some questions you have. Um, I'm sure there's things in there we didn't talk about, uh, some questions you might have about what's in, in the passage. Um, so, so please do have a think on those as well. But maybe just take a moment now just to pray by yourself and then we'll have those questions in a moment. <clears throat>